Hi, I'm Andrew. Welcome to the Review of Two Dodge Geoengineering podcast. I'm here today with Leonard Back, and we're talking about his paper on ocean analogues for carbon dioxide removal. Welcome to the show. Hello. Thanks for having me. So, um, just to confirm to our reader, uh, readers, we always call them readers. No idea why. Uh, I keep making a mistake over and over again. Um, Leonard is, in fact, one of the many idiots that we've had on the show who can't remember the title of his own paper and <laughs> had to look it up. You might think scientists are, pro are professionals and can remember both the content of the paper and the title, but I can assure you that's not the case. So, Leonard, can you please read out the title of the paper that you've forgotten that you've written? Uh, seeking natural analogs for uh, to fast forward the assessment of marine CO2 removal. Okay, yeah. and as you, as you can't remember the title, you probably can't remember what's in the paper either. <laughs> so so um, let me explain to you a summary understanding uh, of what, uh, what this paper is about. Um, and then you can see if you can remember anything about your paper at all. So as I understand it, what you're trying to do here is to look at uh, things that happen naturally in the ocean uh, that are a bit like what we might do with CDR. And as a result of analyzing those things, we uh, take a shortcut to uh, understanding ocean CDR that doesn't require us to do uh, controversial or expensive or technically complicated experiments in the open ocean. Is that, um, is that basically the thrust of the paper? Yeah, you summarized it quite well. That's excellent. We can all go home now. We don't need to bother with the rest of the episode. <laughs> um, so um, give us a bit of background. Tell us, tell us about who you are and where you work, if you, if you can indeed remember um, uh, which institution you work at. Well, perhaps the reason why I forgot everything is because it's late here. So I'm in, in Tasmania um, okay. at, the, at the university. So what time's there? How have we kept you? I thought you, I thought you were on uh, Indian time. Um, Indian but, time? Because uh, you... Yeah, because your um your phone code isn't it six one? Isn't that India? Um, no, I, I've obviously got that wrong. Okay, my mistake. Um, so uh, yeah, that's why I was rather careless about your schedule and uh, didn't mind about keeping you up because I didn't realise how late it was. But um, what time are you recording for us right now? Uh it's quarter past eight, so it's not too bad. Don't worry. Oh, that's not too bad. You know, you can't complain about quarter past eight. I thought you were going to tell it's half past <laughs> two in the morning or something like that. Well, um, I have two kids. So, but... Yeah, okay. that excuse. yeah, excuses, excuses. Right, so it's bedtime for you in a few minutes because you're <laughs> middle-aged, right? Okay, um, so um, this um, uh, this paper uh, looks at how many um, different ways of, um, uh, you know, creating a kind of CDR-like um, approach, how, 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 uh, how many different ways have you um, considered that are comparable to uh, artificial CDR? Well, we've considered four different predominant methods, but we've not excluded any other ones. We just felt like these ones were the ones where there's uh, gr greatest gain of using natural analogs to assess. Yeah. So, that's a, so you've got um, an, a set of examples, which gives you a way of, um, uh, of showing people how this principle could be used um, without ruling out you know, other alternatives. So. Do you want to, so by way of background, I mean, the oceans, I think, are a kind of misunderstood element of CDR. And I've certainly learned an awful lot about that from um, doing a podcast and talking to people who are um, experts in one or other um, aspects of um, uh, ocean chemistry or, or whatever. But do you, want to, do you want to talk us through this little basic principles? I mean, why, why is ocean CDR a thing? Why do we care about it? Why is it important? 
Well, very, very simply put, I would say that while well, the oceans cover 71% of the Earth's surface, and it would be quite silly not to consider them for CDR in, in, re, with regards to the challenges ahead. And obviously they hold huge potential to sequester carbon, which they already do right now. And um, potentially there's a way to- could, could, you, could you just dive into that specifically? Because my understanding of it is that sort of central to the, um, the biogeochemical cycling is that people sort of predominantly think of, <coughs> of uh, carbon dioxide as residing in the atmosphere, but that's rather a misunderstanding, isn't it? I wonder if you just speak to that briefly. Um, yeah, exactly. So about 25% go into the ocean of the emitted CO2 and the other 25% um, roughly go uh, well, go into the biosphere and then the rest remains in the in the atmosphere. So yeah, the oceans already do as a great, great service in, in mitigating atmospheric CO2. In terms, but in ter terms of the total um, labile carbon budget, um, the, the oceans are... Uh, are massively dominant, aren't they? I think they hold something like 99% of the of the um, carbon that's capable of cycling. Is that is that correct? You mean the inorganic carbon, the, the soft inorganic? Yeah, carbon? yeah, yeah. The oh, yeah, that is the largest. Carbon. That is the largest carbon pool on the Earth's surface. Yeah, and what and what did I get the percentages right, vaguely right? I mean, are we looking at roughly one percent in the atmosphere and roughly 99% in the oceans, or have I just made that up completely? Um. Um. So, well, the oceans, I don't know the percentages, but the, the oceans hold, uh, in, in t with respect to DIC, oh God, hopefully I got this number right. right. I think it's 39,000 uh, uh, giga gigatons, yeah? And the atmosphere is um, 750. Oh God, I would have to look but, up sorry, the carbon so budget. But, so um, that, okay, so, so that's 39 trillion tons of carbon yeah, dissolved in organic carbon in the ocean yeah. it's 750 750 trillion tons in the atmosphere is that 750 trillion no 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 there's okay, 750 gigatons yeah 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 okay so yeah. 750 gigatons is 0.75 trillion tons yeah yeah okay so you're looking about you know <laughs> crudely you're looking about 50 times more in the ocean. So it's about 98% is in the ocean and about 2% is in the atmosphere, right? Yeah, it's, yeah, it's my, like, it's marginal compared to the amount in the ocean. But I hope I got in these the numbers in right. In the atmosphere. You, you blindsided me on the numbers now. Oh, it's a, fa it's a favorite of ours. We don't, we don't <laughs> like to bore people by just giving them easy questions. But fundamentally what you're, what you're saying is the reason you concentrate on the ocean is because it's you know between one and two orders of magnitude larger um, as a store of carbon than the atmosphere, right? Well, that's not particularly the reason I would say because it doesn't really matter how much it holds already. I, I'd rather look at the potential that's still there to take. Okay, up yeah, but the yeah the delta, so the delta in the oceans. If you if you can make a small change um, in the oceans, um, that's equivalent to a very large change in the atmosphere because the ocean pool is so small. So if you raise the ocean pool by, for example, 2%, and that's equivalent to the entire atmosphere, right? Yes, but um, that would be 
very likely unachievable. So two percent. No, no, I mean, like, yeah, not only would it be unachievable, it would also be very, very stupid because that would mean that we wouldn't have any carbon dioxide in the air and plants couldn't grow. So no one would ever do that. But the, the point I'm making is that because of the larger pool, a, a proportional change in the pool of ocean carbon makes a very large difference to the total pool of carbon stored on the planet, whereas in the atmosphere, that's not the case because the atmosphere holds only a small proportion of the total carbon. So the capacity of the ocean, the potential capacity of the ocean to absorb carbon is much, much higher um, than is often appreciated by people because most people aren't aware unless they study the field that the oceans hold all this extra reserve of, of carbon. Yeah, so, and um, yeah, and on the long Sorry, run, the, the oceans will take up all anthropogenic CO2 anyways, right? Over geological timescales due to the weathering feedback. So they yeah. will sequester everything in the end. So the weathering feedback, my understanding of this is that the weathering feedback is what keeps the planet's temperature stable um, over geological time. And it's why we've had liquid water on Earth, um, even as the sun has steadily got hotter and hotter and hotter over the, or put out more radiative energy, to be more precise about it during um, the time uh, that life has existed on Earth. So do you want to just speak briefly um, to that, um, uh, that weathering feedback? But what's the chemistry behind it? Uh, well, so um, when there's a, well, a high concentration of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, then chemical weathering is accelerated just because, uh, well, the, the rates increase, probably also the, the climate's getting warmer. And then, uh, well, through this feedback, then um, the through the weathering reaction, CO2 is absorbed and then ends up in the ocean as bicarbonate, which we measure, for example, as alkalinity. So that's the net, the natural feedback loop. Yeah. The problem so is the, um, that this is a slow process, so it doesn't help us acutely with the problem of climate change. Okay, so the weathering feedback is what mechanism is that? Um, are you talking about silicate weathering or carbonate weathering there or what? Uh, yeah, well, mostly silicate weathering on the longer term, but also okay. carbonate weathering to some extent. That is um, probably um, a bit the weathering, sorry, the silicate weathering feedbacks um, a bit slower than the carbonate feedback. Yep. So what because you're basically saying is as the, as the earth gets hotter, um, the, there's more energy moved around in the climate system. Um, the hydrological cycle becomes intensified. Um, and that leads to more chemical weathering, and that chemical weathering draws down the additional carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, which is causing the heating um, uh, through the greenhouse effect. And by removing that carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, you end up in a situation where you have um, then controlled increased temperature. So it acts like a thermostat in your home as the um, as somewhat independent of the temperature outside. So. Uh, on a cold day, your your thermostat will um, ensure that your house stays warm because you have uh, it switches the heating on when it gets a bit too cold in the house, and then when the house gets too hot, then it will switch the heating off. And if it's set up correctly, then it's the temperature inside the house is broadly independent of the um, energy um, <laughs> losses to the outside environment that's a that, that's a rough analog and what you're describing is a situation where the ocean weathering um 
with, with, with the rock weathering, which is ultimately driven by um, carriage of these mineral um, products into the ocean. Um, it, that, that's how the thermostat works on a planetary scale, right? Uh, yes. Well, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I just think it's important to cover the basics because I mean, a lot of people aren't necessarily familiar. They might be, um, they might have, for example, a good understanding of the politics of climate change, or they might be an expert in a particular aspect of engineering, but they don't have that kind of overarching understanding of the way that the oceans um, uh, are involved in a part, you know, as, as a way of regulating and, um, uh, and uh, potentially allowing an opportunity to manipulate and create methods to to do carbon dioxide removal um, because that you know they don't they don't understand the fundamentals. So I think it's important to just cover the fundamentals before we go into the detail of these techniques. Otherwise, people don't necessarily understand what we're trying to achieve and, and how we go about doing that. So, given that background um, of the of the, uh, the fundamental chemistry and physics behind the role of the oceans in climate change and in the carbon budget. Can you talk me through the principles um, that you're trying to um, uh, use your uh, identified techniques as, or identified areas as, as natural analogs for? So you, it, you might want to summarise a list of the of these of these different techniques and the areas in which they apply, just to, so people get their head round you know, the, the, the sort of the basics of what you're discussing in your paper. Yeah, right. Okay, so, well, the first thing in the paper was that we needed to identify, um, uh, well, criteria that can be used to identify the most useful natural analogs, right? And, uh, well, these criteria are, first of all, the scale of the analog, because CDR is meant to be large scale eventually in order to have some impact on the climate system. Okay. Let me let me just stop you there for a minute. Um, what what I'm trying to what I'm trying to elicit from you is just a kind of uh, a bird's eye view of the techniques that you've that you've got. I understand that the sorting process is really important, and I'd like to return to that. But to help people get a clear understanding of what you're actually talking about, um, could you go into you know um, uh, you know give me a one sentence summary of the uh, I think it was four techniques that you mm -hmm. described, just so people understand. You know what you're trying to manipulate and which bits of the ocean you think are uh, useful as an analog for these techniques. So okay, so the four approaches. The first one is uh, we we uh, looked at is artificial upwelling, which um, aims to pump nutrient-rich deep water from the deep ocean into the surface where there's sunlight, and then um, well, the nutrients that go into the surface they fertilize phytoplankton or photosynthesis and therefore carbon fixation. And that carbon is supposed to eventually um, sink down and be sequestered. But the problem is that when you pump up nutrients, you also pump up CO2. So you kind of um, have to make sure that the amount of carbon fixation that occurs in the surface ocean after pumping the nutrients upwards, upwards is higher than the CO2 you pumped into the surface ocean in the first place. So this is this is the critical problem there. And uh, the analog we were uh, considering, I mean, discussed many, but the one we felt like was most appropriate is art, uh, sorry, is equatorial upwelling, which is uh, due to specific current systems in the equator region. Um, there is, um, well, nutrient natural upwelling occurring into oligotrophic water. So oligotrophic means nutrient poor waters. 
on an episodic um, base, so on a seasonal basis. So the water is pushed upwards or entering the, the, the sunlit part of the surface ocean and then productivity increases and you can pretty much see that every year. So, um, okay, I, I hereby abandon my attempts to get you to give one sentence summaries of anything. Um, <laughs> so let's go, let's go into the detail as that's clearly where you want to be. Um, so you've got this, um, uh, so one of your techniques is this ocean upwelling. So um, as I understand it, there are nutrient poor surface waters um, and you have a deep ocean current, which um, comes up from the lower ocean and brings with it nutrients and CO2. And the challenge there is getting the balance to make sure that the carbon drawdown resulting from the, um, uh, the addition of nutrients is not outweighed by the carbon loss from uh, essentially opening up a bottle of Coca-Cola, right? So when you, when you take the pressure off a bottle of Coca-Cola, you, um, uh, you have a pressure release effect that re results in the carbon dioxide bubbling out of solution right so in, in the in the coca-cola it's it's held as um carbonic acid and then when you open the top of the bottle it, it that carbonic acid then um uh turns into the, or the dissolved inorganic carbon then turns into gaseous carbon dioxide and escapes from the solution right so that's the process by which that loss occurs um and you, you have to balance those out like a seesaw so as you get more and more nutrients um, you, the bugs eat the carbon dioxide, the, the plankton, uh, the um, phytoplankton eat the carbon dioxide and then um, uh, fall down to the bottom of the ocean, either as dead phytoplankton or as fish poop or whatever it turns into. Um, and you've got to balance it out with your kind of fizzy Coca-Cola effect, um, losing the carbon dioxide out of the system. Uh, and you have to weigh up whether that works or doesn't work. Is that right? Um well, yes, I think I think so. I mean, the the key thing really is that the, the deep ocean is rich in CO two, which is respired by bacteria and, and organisms there. And when you pump this up, then you uh, cause more CO two, or you you pull more CO two to the surface ocean, which is just contrary to the biological carbon pump, which just does just the opposite. And in order for artificial upwelling to work, the well, the, the stimulation of photosynthesis has to be larger in terms of carbon drawdown and subsequent sequestration than the initial uh, upwelling brought CO2 to the surface, right? So you just have to make yep. sure it's more than that. Otherwise, okay. it's a zero-sum game or potentially even negative. Yeah. So the, the natural analog of, of this process is that you, you've got, is it the Galapagos that has this upwelling region? So you have cold currents is that the, is it the humboldt current in that area or am i is my well the humboldt current is a, the humboldt current is in uh south america going uh yeah. northwards from you know in front of chile peru and that causes coastal upwelling so what we were taught yeah. that's another form of upwelling that's also potentially interesting but we we thought that this is not the best analog for what we intend to do with artificial upwelling because these regions are already naturally uh, fertilized with nutrients and artificial upwelling attempts to um, stimulate productivity in regions that are so far not very productive. And these happen to have no upwelling, you are not very frequently upwelling. Uh, yeah, but like, uh, hold on. Let, let, let me, let, I thought the point of your paper was that you were trying to find areas where you had natural 
fertilization and surely this Humboldt current which fertilizes the Galapagos and gives its characteristically rich waters is precisely the kind of upwelling that you would want to analyze or do I fundamentally misunderstand something about your paper is it is it the lack of, of is it the fact that it's not cyclical that it doesn't switch on and off that means that it's not very useful well not necessarily it's it's more like the the region is already uh well nutrient rich it could be it could be used uh, to study certain processes but if we want to to look at something that most closely simulates what we intend to do with artificial upwelling we would probably look at another region um not okay. saying so, that... so 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 what you're saying is that you've got nutrient rich waters coming into nutrient rich waters not nutrient rich waters coming into nutrient poor waters is that is that right yes yeah, so is it... yeah <laughs> okay. yeah so you so where where in the world is it that you found this artificial upwelling thing that made it possible to um uh to appraise nutrient rich waters entering nutrient poor waters what what part of the ocean has that phenomenon that you were looking to analyze yeah so that's what we uh felt was most closely uh, found in equatorial regions because there we have these episodic events of um when you say equatorial regions scale. i mean there's a lot there's a lot of equator so which bit of the equator is it that you are particularly interested in um so we looked at the um well at the not the equatorial atlantic but you could argue the same thing occurs in the equatorial pacific not so much in the Indian Ocean because they obviously um, uh, you don't have that much of an equator. But um, okay, yeah. So we were looking at so but help me understand. That. So what, Nigeria. You... In okay. There. So you so okay. So the sort of off west in the Atlantic, off West Africa, you've got a, a region of upwelling of nutrient rich waters into nutrient poor waters. Now, talk, talk me through the physics of why that happened. Is it is it just luck that these things happen in the equator, or is it something like the intertropical convergence zone, which is um, the atmospheric equivalent, and 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 very much isn't luck. It's a very specific um, you know phenomenon that is directly caused by the fact that the these regions are equatorial regions. Um, uh, if you could explain to me how this upwelling tends to occur on the equator, that'd be very helpful. Yeah. Okay. So um, it's it's physically very complicated, but uh, perhaps the easy the easiest explanation to approach it is that because of the the Coriolis force that goes in different causes a net flow in different direction that causes uh, surface currents to go um, northward north of the equator and southward south of the equator, and that causes a pull, so that the water is pulled up, kind of. Uh, in the middle okay right? so it's a similar so it's a similar process to the equatorial um uh up upwelling in the atmosphere that that occurs in that that it's a a fundamental feature of the earth's glo global nature it's not uh you know an accident that just occurs as a result of the positioning of the land masses right it's something which is you know a, a fundamental feature of the of the of the of the earth's roundness and the fact that it spins um well i'm not a expert on the atmospheric movements and what it causes it but yes from the pictures i see when i look into these convergence zone zones you could think they are similar um okay well that's great uh, just out, just out of interest um I, you didn't go into your professional background so um what is your um uh what stage of your career are, are you at are you a postdoc or what and um what's your um specialism and uh and uh a doctoral qualification um so i'm 
I would say I'm mid-career now, so I'm a bit past the postdoc phase. I'm I'm a future fellow of the Australian Research Council. Um, okay. And um, I, I work at the University of Tasmania, and then I'm just you know I'm just transitioning from a postdoc into building uh, my own research group. So that's why I'm okay, standing. Okay, right. And my expertise yep. is I'm actually well by my doctor was on mostly on plankton ecology and uh, biogeochemistry. Okay. So it's kind of related to what you're doing in this paper then. It's a sort of similar, it's a thread of research that's, you know, that it's not just a kind of random foray into something you found interesting. It's part of a broader no. theme of academic research that you've undertaken. No, I would hope I, I'm qualified to... <laughs> to uh, okay. Well, to, yeah, I mean, you can, you can write papers on stuff that you're not... That you're not um, <laughs> you, you, <laughs> It wasn't an accusation of not being qualified. It was, it was just stating that academics will often write outside their core field of expertise because a lot of the time you're, you're doing something which is new and, and, and you know, there, there isn't an expert in, in the field, right? Because you're creating the field as you go along. So certainly wasn't accusing you of... No, 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 no I, don't, I, don't, I didn't get it wrong, don't worry. <laughs> and and by fine. the way, I have worked outside my core expertise as well. So I'm, I'm not an exception to that. Okay, um, well, if there's um, there's only going to be one um, person who lacks expertise on this show, and that's me, and I'm not having anybody encroaching onto my territory. So um, anyway, back to the paper. So you've got this upwelling thingy that you were doing, and that was one of your natural analogs. And then give me your second natural analog. What was the other thing that you found out of your four that you looked at? Um, so ocean iron fertilization, um, which is a classic. It's not particularly novel. Um, and then we looked at, we, well, we highlighted um, downstream of um, ocean islands that happen to be in iron limited regions where there's natural yeah. iron fertilization, such as Galapagos in this case, or Kerguelen in the Southern Ocean. And I want to emphasize, it's not something I, we proposed for the first time. So this has actually been, studies on this have, have been made. Oh, I, I understand that, but, but my understanding of that is that you picked some unusual examples. So my, my understanding is that the main additions from um, <coughs> of, of iron come from two sources. So you've got aeolian dust, and that's believed to be the driving force between the transition between, um, or what there is at least a theory at one time, I don't know if that theory is still current, but that, that aeolian dust is one of the key controls on the, the onset of glacial periods. So basically as the, um, as the ocean, as a, as a world, as the world gets cooler and drier, then you have a positive feedback in that the cooler, drier world has more wind-blown dust, and that wind-blown dust lands in the ocean and causes further drawdown um, of carbon through iron fertilization, and thus you have a, a this sort of bistable situation where when you start entering a glacial period, you then keep getting colder and colder and colder until you max out into the interglacial period and then you have this relatively stable interglacial period which is typically rather shorter um, uh, where we have a, a stable warm climate like we've had for the last few millennia and not perhaps not coincidentally that's when human civilization arose despite humans having been around for a few hundred thousand years we haven't had anything much resembling civilization until we had that stable interglacial climate in the um, Holocene climate optimum. Yeah. <laughs> and so why did you pick that 
why did you pick your one and not the windblown dust? And the other one that would have seemed an obvious one to pick um, is the um, uh, is the carving of icebergs from Antarctica, because you get these um, the, the 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 glacial bed scrapes a whole bunch of um, uh, <coughs> of iron rich minerals from the rocks in Antarctica, and then it, those those minerals are then um, uh, you, they, they, they become, uh, they introduce iron into the ocean ecosystem. What, why, why did you pick um, the ocean islands and not these larger scale effects that are more traditionally seen as being the kind of natural analogs for ocean iron, iron fertilization? Well, the, um, I picked them because, uh, the, well, the, the island is stable where it is, right? And the fertilization occurs all the time and it occurs at a very large scale. So an iceberg could potentially also be a, a valid or a valuable uh, analog if you happen to see one and uh, be close to it to do your study. But I mean, you know, how research works is that we have to plan research campaigns three years in advance and we know that Kerguelen is where it is. And we okay. can be absolutely certain that when we go there that there's natural iron fertilization. So it is, and also it is at a much, much larger scale and because we we are likely attempting CDR at large scales eventually, um, and all these uh, CDR methods, well, they have scale dependencies, meaning if they work at one kilometer in size, it doesn't mean they work the same at a 10 to the power of six times larger size, same way. Yeah, so, so basically you're just trying to make your life easier so you have a more practical research workload. That's what it comes down to, right? Well, that's one of the four criteria to identify useful analogs, which we um, okay. kind of laid out. So um, uh, as we're, this seems a useful opportunity to make a segue into your, um, uh, into your criteria. So uh, we, we've introduced a couple of techniques. So let's go through the criteria. How did you, um, how did you sift and filter these techniques then? So yeah, so we talked already about scale. So essentially the larger, the better, because not necessarily just because of, just because for the fact of large is necessarily good, but um, because that is one thing that distinguishes nat natural analogs from experiments. We will most likely not be allowed to do a large scale experiments before any implementation of um, CDR methods start because that would already be implementation. So that's probably our only chance to study it at a large scale. So that's the first criterion. And the second one is then, the, well, the reoccurrence, we call it reoccurrence. So kind of um, the, the more regular they occur, the more attractive uh, they become, they are predictable and we can kind of compare, we have most likely more data on it. And um, uh, Third um, criterion was oh my God. <laughs> um, Forgotten your paper again. Uh, I tell you, it's quarter to nine. Um, <laughs> oh, sure. morning, yeah, well, the um, the abruptness of the perturbation, of course. Okay, yes, yeah, so you want a good front, a good edge, either in time or space, that says this is the perturbed region, this is the non-perturbed region, right? Because if you don't have that clarity, then obviously you don't get, you don't, you, you can't really tell which bits which, right? Sorry, what was that? Yeah, you, basically, you need you need the, the the perturbed region needs to be clearly bounded either in time or space, because otherwise you'll end up in a situation where you can't tell 
what's the perturbed region and what's the not perturbed region, right? Um, yes, but I guess I guess you could measure that. What I'm I, what I was uh, referring to is the, the abruptness of the perturbation, so the time scale the, the perturbation occurs, because. The yeah, reason, but, it, but it could equally be space. It could equally be spatial, though, couldn't it? I mean, it doesn't have to be a time. Well, that's that's um, our first criterion on the scale, right? So that was no, 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 no. Hold on. What I'm talking about is the edging of the effect. So, say for example, you've got an ocean current that flows past an island. It's very clear whether the ocean current has or hasn't reached the island. It's a binary thing. Like either the water has hit the island or it hasn't hit the island. So you've got a clear spatial upstream versus downstream effect. So the bounding that you're talking about could equally well be done in time as it could be in space, right? There's not a clear distinction between whether time or space is the most important criteria. And you could make the same thing work in both ways, right? Um, not sure if I understood what you mean here by time. You mean like the, length, the well, longevity of the perturbation? Yeah, well, no, the, the suddenness of the onset. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. So you can either have, yeah, so you can either, so you can either, you can either sort, you can sort it in one of two ways. So you can either have something which is like a rainstorm that comes in. So it rains for an hour and then it stops raining. And then if you want to monitor the conditions that happen in a rainstorm, it's very clear when it's raining because there's water falling out of the sky. And that doesn't happen all the time. It only happens at certain times, right? And then, you know, you, you know when it's raining, when it's not raining, because the onset of rain is normally quite distinct. Yeah. I mean, not necessarily down to the second, but, you know, you can tell whether it's raining in a 10 minute period or not raining in a 10 minute period, right? And it mm -hmm. might only rain once every couple of days. Um, and then you've got a spatial per perturbation, which might be, for the example, the equivalent of a, you know, a, a, an ocean current hitting an island. It's very clear whether the ocean current, that the ocean water is upstream or downstream of the island because the island's in a specific fixed place and you know the direction of the ocean current. And therefore wow. you've got that very clear demarcation. That's what I was meaning, yeah? Oh yeah, okay. Mm -hmm. Okay, so um, but that was so the third use... criterion. I was I was alluding to the 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 third one was um, how fast uh, the perturbation occurs on, on with respect to time, right? So if it occurs over a hundred of hundreds of years, like glacial interglacial transitions, or if it occurs on you know on a from on a seasonal basis, like at, for example, equatorial upwelling occurs on, only in uh, in summer. And then, yeah, and so then you, it's you really yeah, you need to have an appropriate degree of rapidity because you can't study something that only happens once every generation, right? Well, you, you can, that's what people do a lot in the paleo sciences. So they, they look at uh, paleo conditions and trying to understand the climate system of the future, and that is, of yeah. course, extremely valuable. But the, the, the difference to CDR is essentially that we have to implement it within 10 years or so. So we argue that the abruptness, so the more abrupt the perturbation occurs, the better it represents CDR. Okay, so you're not, it's not just about ease of study, it's also about having a representative analysis, right? So that you're talking about uh, system effects that, are, um, that, that change rapidly. That's quite yes. an interesting criteria, because I would have thought that you, that, that wouldn't, I, I would have thought the ease of study would have been far more important than would be the um, uh, the, the the actual uh, you know the, the geographical impact of the um, 
uh, of the speed of transition, but you're actually drawing attention to the fact that you want something that switches rapidly because it's a, a more effective equivalent, right? Yes, I think the um, the ease of the study is, of course, very important. But luckily, uh, since a couple of years, the ocean observational capacity is, has like increased so much. We now have Argo floats in the ocean everywhere, and um, all sorts of robots, and obviously satellites. Yeah. So um, I mean, it's always good to have more data, but I think um, the databases that we have allows the assessment already to some degree today. Uh, so are, are, are you proposing that there's a reanalysis of existing data? Is your, is your research principally based on reanalyzing or is your research principally based on um, uh, uh, conducting novel analyses of these effects? Uh, I mean, personally, I wouldn't really care. What, whatever you do is fine if, you, if it leads to more knowledge about CDR. So if it, if the data has already been interpreted in other contexts, then but, but was this but was this part of your selection criteria? Did you, no. did you look at these things? And think, no, oh, it's what? not. I mean, it can be. It's totally fine to repurpose data and look uh, like reuse it in the CDR context. That's totally fine. But of course, it's all also great if you generate new data to, to study something. So I I was pretty you know neutral on this. I don't have a strong opinion here. Okay. So, um, for the, the, the purpose of the paper really is to motivate the research community to look at to look at natural analogs because we think it is an underexploited resource to study ocean CDR. Because you know when people study it, they mostly they either do modeling or they do um, well experiments. And yeah. um, so we, we kind of argue that this is an interconnecting pillar between the two approaches. Um, I mean, I think your, your reasoning is very sound, which is what I got you on, because I thought it would, I just looked at it and I was like about two sentences into reading your abstract. And I was like, this is really good. Like, I haven't seen anything like this before. And it's, you know, it's, an, it's just an obviously sensible thing to do. But what you've done is you've gone beyond the, um, in your paper, you've gone beyond the, um, uh just making the obvious point you've actually started to research you know how and where this could be applied which i think is helpful um so you can you talk to the two techniques that you haven't yet discussed please because you kind of got sidetracked on your uh, we finished the selection criteria yet or not uh, not yet one is missing so we have a fourth one which is the availability of of a control site so um ideally if you study a perturbation that mimics your ocean CDR method, then you want a control site that is not perturbed. And ideally that control site is identical except for the perturbation itself. So that's how we design okay. experiments. And uh, obviously we need something to compare it with. And therefore a good analog would be, would be one that has a suitable control site at hand. Okay. So just um, for listeners that weren't paying attention, such as me, um, could you quickly skim over your um, uh, those four criteria that you had for the selection again, please? So yeah, so the first one, large, large scale. So the larger, the better. The abruptness of, of the perturbation. So ideally one that occurs rapidly in the Earth system. And that, that's, te that's temporal, not spatial, right? Temporal, yeah, temporally, yeah. A temporal yeah. abruptness. Okay. And yeah. um, ideally you have a good control site for your... Um, well, for your perturbation, so the same region that is not 
well, not the same region, but a similar region that is just similar in everything but the perturbation. And then the reoccurrence uh, of the phenomenon, because when it occurs once, that's cool, that's great, but um, ideally we have some reoccurrence so that we can study it multiple times because of research logistics, but also because then we can compare if the if it works differently, for example, during El Nino years, um, then during La Nina years or something like that, right? So we know how much, how reliable it is in a way. A sort of fre frequent flipping as it were. Yeah. Okay, great. Yeah. So can you speak to the other two um, techniques that you didn't, um, that you didn't discuss previously? Yes, right. So we have artificial upwelling and ocean iron fertilization. Um, the, the third one is uh, ocean alkalinity enhancement. So that is the one geological uh, the mo well approach where um, well which can be achieved so oh, that's that's the most complicated one because no one understands alkalinity uh, alkalinity is just the capacity of seawater to chemically bind uh, co2 right um, it's like perhaps when you say no one understands alkalinity what what, what is the what is the com complicated thing there? I mean, alkalinity is sort of primary school science, right? Uh, well, if you Google alkalinity, I mean, better you better Google scholar uh, alkalinity, but then you get an equation with, I don't know, 20 uh, ions and molecules, and uh, there's not, well, um, <laughs> and if you open up the the carbonate chemistry bible in seawater one of the first sentences is that carbon chemistry uh, sorry alkalinity is perhaps one of the least understood um concepts in chemical oceanography um yeah okay that surprises me uh, okay what, well what, maybe what, you, what is it what is it about alkalinity that's not understood i mean you know acids and alkalis are you know one of the first things you learn about in school chemistry right when you're kind of eight years old so what what is it what 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 is it about ocean alkalinity that makes it so unlike particularly complicated compared to you know the, the the sort of more fundamental acids and alkalis chemistry that you might learn when you're in uh, junior school? Um, well, <laughs> even explaining that is complicated. Um, so alkalinity just doesn't well it it's by definition on oh god how do i start it's 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 weak acids that can absorb protons above a ph of 4.5 um so it's 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 a range of different ions and molecules um that can technically uh well absorb co2 uh, sorry protons within a certain uh, ph range and maybe that's not so important and rather con confusing and helpful. I, I would just think of it as the capacity to neutralize protons for the moment. And when you neutralize protons, you basically um, reduce the concentration of CO2 because then the protons cannot attach anymore to carbonate and bicarbonate ions. And then the, um, the concentrations, the concentration of, um, of carbonate and bicarbonate increase. Um, and therefore, you have more space in the carbonate system for CO2 to enter the ocean. And it's, it's, the complication is that it's, the, the CO2 is just dissolved in, in the water. So it's not necessarily you know, bound to some substance or something like that. 
as an understanding is that, that CO2, CO2 doesn't directly dissolve, does it? It dissociates and forms a it forms carbonic acid when it's in the ocean. It doesn't it doesn't exist as CO2, or not in the most part. No, in most is part correct? it exists as bicarbonate. Yeah. Um, yeah. But um, so it, it forms by it forms so CO2 dissolves in water, then it reacts with with H2O, so water, to form uh, yeah. carbonic acid. The carbonic acid releases some releases protons and these protons um if they are absorbed by some by by some sort of uh, chemical reaction and are not um floating around anymore then they cannot bind to uh, carbonate and bicarbonate anymore and therefore the 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 concentration of co2 cannot increase any anymore right so you kind of you kind of make space you 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 shift the balance towards carbonate and bicarbonate and make more space for new CO2 to enter it. Okay. Uh, the ocean. And therefore you just have more capacity to store CO2. And that's what ocean alkalinity enhancement aims to do, just by the um, chemical weathering of rocks, for example, you uh, can generate um, or you basically you absorb protons and that way you make more space for CO2 to get into the ocean. Okay, um, so um, where are the unnatural analogs for that then? Yeah, so um, we propose the, the Black and the Caspian Seas. So these are marginal seas in Europe, obviously, or in, in Asia. And um, the Caspian and Sea is, um, isn't the Caspian Sea landlocked? It's not, it's, in, it's, large, it's a large lake, right? Um, well, it has, um, it has brackish salinity. So yes, it is. It is landlocked, um, like the. Black it's not sea. actually connected to the global oceans, is it? Isn't it? Yeah. Uh, well, there is a channel going to the Black Sea, but. Um, oh right. Okay. Yes, but uh, it's not like I mean, the Black Sea is also not very well. It's it's connected to the, uh, to the Mediterranean. To the Bosporus. So when was the Caspian Sea last sort of fully connected to the global ocean system then? Because it, I mean, I, I, I'd imagine it's not unique at the moment that it's kind of partially connected so when was it last fully connected i don't really know for about the caspian sea i, I assume it's also okay. paleotethis how do you say that in english tethys tethys ocean i think yeah i'm not sure i believe is the the black sea is part of that and the caspian sea was the caspian sea also part of the paleotethis ocean i'm not sure about that Okay, I would assume just from the location, but I'm I don't know. Um, okay. But I mean the for the analog that doesn't really matter. the The key thing is that it does have um, an alkalinity which is about one point eight times higher than the global ocean average. So it's so so it's less salty, but more. The, so the, is that the Caspian Sea or the Black Sea you're talking about? That uh, both. So the 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 Caspian Sea is one point eight times higher in alkalinity than the global ocean and the um and the black sea is uh 1.4 or 1.5 okay so that so they're okay so, so the caspian sea and the black sea are, are less salty but more alkaline is that right yes and why is that um well the black sea for the black sea the um there's a rivers discharging so danu um which are just carrying a lot of um, carbonates because the Danube, for example, goes to, uh, in, 
in some German regions into the karst regions, which um, when they weather, they release a lot of carbonate and therefore alkalinity. And that discharges so into- Karst, karst regions, that's K-A-R-S-T, is that right? Yeah, so well- And what uh, makes karst regions- bedrocks. Okay. And when they dissolve, obviously, they calcium carbonate dissolves, then they um, carry, carry away alkalinity. And um, therefore, so just, just you know, a bad, when, when rivers go through bedrock that um, chemically weathers uh, and, re well, releases alkalinity while it's doing so, and this then eventually yeah. discharges into, into an ocean, then at this spot, there will be high alkalinity. And because the Black Sea just doesn't have that much exchange with with a global ocean you get concentration of alkalinity that builds up yeah okay and what's the state of that alkalinity ultimately in the ocean i mean like oh, the, the, the global oceans have existed for a lot longer than the black sea has so what 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 is it that removes alkalinity from the ocean and doesn't mean it means it doesn't sort of just build up and build up forever and ever and ever amen uh calcification so just the opposite okay. effect of calcium carbonate dissolution so okay, so formation. formation of calcium carbonate rocks, like the limestone cliffs of Dover in the long term. Yes, and that is biological there. calcification in this case. So it's two organisms okay. that calcify. Yeah, okay, fine. Um, so you've got this ocean alkalinity addition and you're using the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea as analogues for this alkalinity addition. And how is, how is that done? How are you monitoring that? What's your kind of control and stuff like that? Um, so we're proposing the, well, the, the obvious one, the, the Baltic Sea, which is just similar to some extent as it's also a marginal sea. So, so the, Bal the Baltic Sea is nor north of Denmark, isn't it? It's like the gateway to Scandinavia. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So the, the, yeah, the Baltic Sea just, um, then close it's, similar, a lot, it's a lot better exchange than the than the, the Black Sea, because the Black Sea is the end of the Mediterranean. The Mediterranean is not particularly tidal, and therefore we don't get much um, exchange with the Black Sea, which is at the end of the Mediterranean, right? It's sort of like when you're in a, going to the toilets in a nightclub, it's not as loud as on the dance floor because the waves, the sound waves in that case, don't propagate down the corridor to the toilets. So you get a kind of sound insulation effect. So it's, it's a tidal equivalent of that, right? uh well um i don't know it's just that you know the exchange rate is is yeah and I know, but, 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 the re but what drives the what drives the exchange is tidal flow right so every day the global oceans go up and down and therefore you get drives tidal exchange between seas and the, the ocean because the water's being pushed in and out and pushed in and out and pushed in and out but because the black sea is disconnected from the global ocean by the Mediterranean and the Mediterranean only has tides through the Straits of Gibraltar then the, the, the Mediterranean isn't particularly tidal by global standards right and so the rate of exchange to the Black Sea is severely limited by this lack of tidal flow. Uh, well yes if the exchange is only due to tidal um, but that is not the case as far as I know so um, there's a lot of wind push and of course, then the river discharge uh, into the Baltic Sea ha has to outflow as well. Yeah. So there's a lot of physical mechanisms driving the exchange rates. And um, I'm not entirely sure which 
of the two, I mean, the Baltic or the Black Sea has more exchange with uh, the global ocean system. I would assume it's the Baltic Sea, but I am not sure. Yeah, I mean, that, Baltic, that doesn't Baltic really matter that much, I think. Pardon? Okay, but but well, I'm just I'm just suggesting why it might be less, you know, have less chemical differential because it will have less chemical differential if it's less well exchanged, right? If two things are mixed together, like gin and tonic, then they're going to be more. The, the resulting glass of gin and tonic is more chemically homogeneous than the product that you're mixing together to make that gin and tonic, right? So the cocktail starts off as being two separate things and then you mix them together in a glass and then they become a single liquid mixture, right? So an equivalent process happens in the global oceans and that seas and oceans that slop around and exchange fluid between each other will, will become chemically homogeneous more rapidly than ones that don't slop around as much, right? Um, mm, yeah, well, I, I'm not sure if I could follow you, but I just say yes. <laughs> well, basically, well, there's not a lot of point in just saying yes if you, if you didn't feel, understand what I'm saying. Well, what I'm saying is that if you've got more, more physical mixing, then you have more chemical homogeneity. Yeah. So in a, in, a, in, a, oh, in a cocktail, in a cocktail that you drink, you stir the cocktail or shake it, depending on your preference and whether you're a, a secret agent or not. Right. And then the end result of that is that you get a homogeneous mixture of two liquids. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, OK. So when you get less exchange, like you do in the Black Sea compared to the Baltic, then you're going to have more chemical differentiation. Right. Because the the. Um, you have a less aggressive mixing process, partly due to tides, but partly due to other factors that, such as the um, the restriction in the um, uh, the inlets to the sea. Like the Baltic Sea is quite, and there's quite a wide inlet that goes into it, whereas the Mediterranean has got a very narrow ocean strait along the Straits of Gibraltar that limits exchange. And then you've got the Bosphorus going to the Black Sea, so again it limits exchange, right? But anyway, um, we're getting down a rabbit hole here. So you you've got these um, the the Black Sea and the, and the Caspian Sea that you're using in the Baltic Sea as a control. So what's the, um, if there's nothing else you want to say on that technique, what's the final technique that you had? Um, so the, 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 the fourth one is ocean forestation. So that is the idea of growing microalgae. forests and stuff. Pardon? But isn't, it, isn't it macroalgae that people normally want to grow? Kelp and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, didn't I say that? No, he said microalgae. Oh, okay. So, um, well, that's what I heard. You might have, I just might have misheard you. Yeah, so I meant microalgae. Hopefully, said that as well. Microalgae, right. Okay, fine. Yeah, fine. And uh, yeah, so kelps essentially growing that in the open ocean to, you know, basically yeah. grow, uh, well, to stimulate photosynthesis, photosynthetic carbon fixation. And then, yeah. think that startups like running tide and people like that are doing that kind yeah. of uh, growing kelp as a, as a way of tackling climate change, yeah? Yeah. So that is, uh, uh, sorry, yeah, for that, uh, uh, we, we use the Great Atlantic Sargassum Belt, which is, um, well, the occurrence of floating kelps, um, well, well, they started occurring in recent years in the, in the equatorial region uh, in the Atlantic. They've are always... they natural or are they a consequence of mankind's interventions in the ocean, like fertilizer runoff and stuff like that? Yes, they are more likely to be uh, anthropogenically um, enforced to be there. 
So they've always been okay, so, uh, sort of floating sargassum. Well, that, well that's been... really interesting because that's the first one. That's the first thing that you said that was a that is anthropogenic in origin. So you're saying that that some of these techniques can be they're not nat they're not, they don't have to be natural analogs. They can be man-made analogs, but they're just a natural experiment, right? Which is different from being anthropogenic. Um, so, and that, and that, yeah, but, uh, so, uh, so there are two things. First of all, we don't fully know if they are anthropogenic. Um, okay. or, uh, so that could that is currently the I guess the uh, the most likely hypothesis, but it's not really proven as far as I know. And then also, yeah. I mean, uh, I don't I wouldn't necessarily call it anthropogenic. Well, it's well, yeah, you could call well, it point, anthropogenic the, if it's not deliberate, point, I guess. But yeah, the point I'm making is that it, 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 let's assume that they are caused by anthropogenic interventions. They're not deliberately caused. People haven't done this for the purposes of CDR. But what you're doing is you're saying, look, this stuff exists at the moment. And therefore, what we can do is we can monitor this and use it as a natural experiment in the same way that, you know, changes in um, the economy due to um, pandemics or whatever, to pick an obvious and contemporary example, um, would be um, uh, they're, they're, you know, they're, it's an anthropogenic event, you know, it's an anthropogenic um, thing that is creating the experiment, but, but you're not deliberately varying the conditions to do the experiment. It's a natural experiment because the conditions exist independently of the experiment. You're just creating the experiment out of existing data. And that's what the two economists or three economists won the Nobel Prize um, for their um, experiments on minimum wage were doing. So they were looking at minimum wages and saying, you know, how do, how do minimum wages affect employment? Um, but they didn't change the minimum wage to do the experiment. They were just, observing what happened when the minimum wage changed anyway right and yeah. so what you're doing is the equivalent of that you're taking a man-made system a man-made effect but you're you're not deliberately varying it for the purpose of the experiment you're relying on the existing variation in that to to do your experiment yeah yeah that's true okay fine so is that all your four techniques yeah so that was the last we, one. we cover them all okay fine so um What's next? Um, in terms of research on, on this on these issues, so yeah, um, I mean, it's, you, you propose a really interesting set of experiments, um, and I really want to understand, you know, how you can go about, um, uh, you know, using this knowledge to actually go out and do some learning. So, I'm proposing the idea is one thing, but just the idea itself doesn't get us anywhere, right? Because you need the data. So how are we gonna yeah. implement your idea? So the one study uh, that is already published where we basically done this is was on ocean deforestation. So we have actually used the Great Atlantic Sargassum Bell to do exactly that, to investigate if seaweeds could uh, sequester significant amounts of carbon. Okay, so, so you've already got, you've already got a pub paper published about this already, or you've already yes. doing research now? No, no, it's already that has been published just a couple of months ago. And was that by your team? Pardon? Was that by your team, or was it independently? No, no, that, that was by by us. Yes. Okay. <laughs> um, and then, are you going to plan on doing further um, research? Yes, um, sure. With, I'm I mean, so okay. I, I decided to focus. You make on... a whole career out of doing this, couldn't you? I mean, like, 
there's a lot there's a lot in what you're saying yeah i mean that's there's yeah i hope i hope like other people pick up on it because i i see a lot of potential there and obviously i cannot i cannot do all of this and all, all this stuff um reasonably myself um so i i decided i um focus on the things that um i see most potential in uh, yeah yeah on the, on the cdr methods and uh, because i i think that ocean alkalinity enhancement is the most uh, plausible one i yeah, will it's focus a pretty on that. it's a pretty pop popular te technology isn't it it's a, a lot of researchers seem to be quite positive about that as a technique so it doesn't seem silly that you might want to work on it in a bit more depth um okay yeah, i would i would say um, a little bit different i would say um it's uh it's it's less unrealistic than the other ones i would say <laughs> at this point yeah, yeah, yeah. Not noting that we haven't done a lot of research so i mean the whole the whole field of ocean cdr i think is is significantly understudied and uh, but nevertheless there's companies on their way that try to do um, implementation already saying the science is clear but to be honest the science is nowhere near clear okay um, just uh, as a people who might be interested, I currently have a crane fly stuck on my glasses, so I can't really see anything. Um, <laughs> might be an entertaining diversion for listeners. Um, so um, you've got a long program of research that is um, uh, potentially going to happen from you and other people on this, and we hope that other people would pick up on your approaches how how much do you how extensible do you think this work is i mean you picked four examples and you said that you don't think that that's that's the end of the story and i you know i fully agree there are other alternatives that you might want to use to research so what 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 techniques have you sort of spotted that you know you might have kind of want to add later or you think you could conceivably have forgotten or whatnot what, what, what you mean where you mean what, cdr techniques that uh, yeah, I mean, you picked four them. techniques. I mean, could you have picked 12 or are there only seven in existence or what? I mean, how, how much further could this process go? Oh, well, that, that goes into the question of kind of the taxonomy of marine CO2 removal. So I think if you go, if you look at it from a really high level, there's only really two different types of ocean CDR, as far as I, I know, at least. So there's um, the enhancement of of alkalinity, so basically working, changing the geological uh, cycle, and then there's uh, changing biological carbon uptake. So basically okay. enhancing the carbon pump. And then you can achieve both things with different methods and artificial yep. upwelling, iron fertilization and ocean afforestation all essentially uh, kind of want to enhance the biological carbon pump. So they kind of go in the same family and the ocean alkalinity enhancement can be achieved by various ways i mean there's there's just the the very basic one spreading ground up minerals all over the place and you can do yeah, yeah. you can use electrochemistry in these things um there's multiple pathways uh, to achieve this okay so you're basically saying that you you, you take these two fundamental techniques you've got your kind of um, the biological ones and you've got the inorganic ones and then you would subdivide those in various different ways and find different techniques that might allow you to manipulate those things and I mean, then research those individual well, techniques in I think, using different I think these natural analogs they um they are great for assessing the the 
the efficiency of CDR and potentially or very likely the, the ecological implications of it. They're not necessarily good uh, analogs for the technology itself, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, it doesn't really so, matter if how you increase the alkalinity, but if the effect is increased alkalinity, then you can look at an, an, at an analog and study it. But that doesn't give yeah, you any yeah. idea on the best um, technology to implement it. Or, well, okay, maybe what, to some extent, but not necessarily. Yeah, but what I'm saying is, what, what I'm saying is that the, as you develop the solution space of different technologies, you might find uh, a greater and greater range of different techniques that are appropriate analogs to, um, to explore these ocean techniques, right? Oh, yeah, you, I mean, 100%. I mean, one idea or one, one hopeful, I hope one consequence of this paper is that people like see their own, their own examples as great natural analogs. Exactly, yeah. Uh, whether that they're technologists or, or oceanographers, right? Like you yeah, can come at yeah. it from either way. You can either come at it from a technologist looking for an analog or you can come at it with someone with an analog looking to match it to a technology, right? It doesn't really matter where you start. No, exactly. So just find, like, look, look around you and, and try to find something. And obviously, the more people do that, the more likely there's nice examples to be found. Okay, great. Um, fine. Well, look, I mean, I think we've covered this reasonably well now. You've, you've covered the criteria of the paper, um, the, the criteria that you've used to assess the techniques in the paper. Um, you've covered uh, four techniques and explained how these fit into two fundamental categories. And those two fundamental categories could end up with far more than the four techniques that you've identified, but they'll all fundamentally fit into those four categories, regardless of how far you extend it, you'll still end up with the same fundamental solution space, right? Mm -hmm. um, you've talked about the further research that you want to do. Um, and, um, you know, do, do you think we've covered the, the issue of the topic fairly well? Or do you think there's anything else that's now outstanding and yet to be explored? I mean, maybe just the one thing to add is that I think that natural analogs are great not only for the scientific assessment, but also to um, enrich the public debate. Because people, when they see something happening in nature, and you know, we talk a lot about experiments and model outputs, and then we can refer to a natural analog and say, look, this actually works, or at least it works on, in, in the natural system already to some extent. Yeah, um, I mean, that's I how um, solid. That's how solid geoengineering has been um, oh, yeah, towards public, public acceptance because you've got the natural volcanic analog, which is a good, um, a good comparator for, um, uh, for what we, you know, we might seek to do with, um, uh, what we might seek to do with um, uh, artificial stratospheric solar aerosol geoengineering, right? Yeah, so that's uh, the first argument in the paper is actually that we refer to Mount Pinatubo eruption, uh, to that eruption as an as a natural analog for solar radiation management. And then we say, um, well, solar radiation management has made much fast, faster progress in our opinion, because they could um, assess consequences based on that. And um, I think there's generally higher confidence that solar radiation management would work if it would be applied just because we know from the Pinatubo eruption that it actually cooled the planet. So there's actually, there's real world context for this. And therefore, and this is like different in the ocean CDR space where everyone's kind of, yeah, well, well these things have not been happening so much. 
So, um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I think you made an excellent point. Um, in fact, the only uh, reason I think I can uh, reject your paper is because you uh, didn't um, remember its name and, <laughs> and your lack of having a clue about your own work uh, clearly shows uh, complete inattention to it, um, for which we're going to arbitrarily and capriciously reject your otherwise very good work. So uh, unless you have anything else to say in your defence, um, we will shove you out of the Reviewer 2 virtual studio. Um, uh, this uh, is, uh, comes at an opportune moment. At this exact second, I finished cleaning my car. And uh, so the interview comes to a natural juncture uh, because the, uh, my housework is done. Your paper is booted out. We fully explored it and uh, readers and listeners, whichever they are, I can never decide, um, get to make up their mind about your work. So um, thank you very much for coming on. And uh, we look forward to your career long exploration uh, of your new idea. Thank you very much. Well, thank you.